Holy Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Your word tells us that our fellowship is with you, Father, and with you, Jesus, and with you, Holy Spirit, that you have invited us into your holy, awesome communion and community, that we who have been far have been brought near. We who have been rebels and enemies and outsiders have been welcomed, not just as desired friends, but embraced as eternally beloved sons and daughters. You have united us with yourself through the blood of Christ our Savior, and with that same blood, you've united us eternally as brothers and sisters into one family. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, power, and passion to live out these realities. Help us now and help these children through your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, last words, last words. <clears throat> what do I say in a sermon of my last words to you as your pastor? <clears throat> well, I've been thinking about uh, that some and about last words from leaders in scriptures. Uh, a friend that, uh, of mine at the Y uh, during a body pump class this, this week uh, who knew that this was my last Sunday asked me what I was going to say. I told him well, I've been thinking about quoting Paul's words from Corinthians, first, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, where he says, finally, brothers, goodbye, and then walk off the platform. <laughs> He said they would probably really appreciate a short sermon. <laughs> but that's not going to happen today. <laughs> so I've been reflecting on leaders' final words in the scriptures. And I've been actually surprised how many places in the scriptures give weight and place to such final words. Uh, Genesis 49, uh, Jacob, who was named Israel, blessed his 12 sons and gave some instruction. Uh, when Jacob had finished giving instruction to his sons, it says he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. I hope that's not going to happen today. <laughs> the whole book of Deuteronomy... 34 chapters is Moses' last words, or his last sermon to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 34, 7, it says, Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. 1 Samuel 12 records the great Judge Samuel's last words to the Israelites. As for me, I am old and gray. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. He said a lot of challenging words, but one thing sticks with me is when he said as their spiritual leader, 
far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. And he said, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. There are many places in the Old Testament where we find last words from leaders. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has a lot of last words recorded. And one of the greatest discourses of last words were Paul's last words to the elders of that multi-ethnic urban church of Ephesus in Acts 20, this church where he spent more time than any of the other churches that he, he had planted. And there we find a very solemn passage. I reviewed these words with the session of elders uh, this past Wednesday. And we all realize that those words and those charges and warnings still ring so true and so relevant for us today. And there Paul says in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Last words. Last words tend to be rather solemn and weighty. I left out reading the very last words Paul said to the elders that in that reading, where he says they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. I guess I wasn't ready for the tears that night. I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than I should, these last words. But I believe uh, that in my last words, this won't be the last time you'll see me. I'm hoping to be around. These are the last words that I will give you as your pastor. We all have known for quite some time that this day was coming. I've been asked how I feel, whether I'm ready for this. And to be perfectly honest, I can't say that I am. I don't think I could ever be fully prepared uh, for this transition after 38 years of the only ministry job I've ever known and the only community faith that I've ever known. There's so much in my life that's been bound up into this fellowship and this community, and my heart is so much bound up in it, but it's okay that I'm not ready. God doesn't promise to give us grace before we need it. He promises to give us grace when we need it. And he promised through Christ to give us grace upon grace. <clears throat> well, today we're going to be looking at the Greatest last words of the greatest leader who's ever lived and who continues to live even now, Jesus. Jesus actually took a lot of very careful time to talk to his disciples and to prepare them the best that he could before he left them. And besides talking to them directly in chapters 13 through 16, where we find from Albert Barnes, he says, 
this discourse in the 14, 15, 16 chapters is the most tender and sublime that was ever pronounced in our world. No composition can be found anywhere so fitted to sustain the soul in trial or to support it in death. This sublime and beautiful discourse is appropriately closed by a most solemn and most affecting prayer, a prayer at once expressive of the profoundest reverence for God and the tenderest love for men, simple, grave, tender, sublime, and full of consolation. And so we are looking at the last words in this last of Jesus before he went to the cross. Let us consider this in verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory and that you, gave, you have given me before because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard for people uh, to stay united. It's hard for people from different perspectives and different personalities and histories and races and ethnicities and classes and political convictions to remain in community. And it's hard, too, for believers for those same reasons. Spencer Perkins and Chris Rice, who wrote More Than Equals, Racial Healing for the Sake of the Gospel, became these unlikely yoke fellows. This was back in the 80s. And uh, we find here that these colleagues who were these yoke fellows in an intentional Christian community was called Antioch. But Chris Rice, uh, this white dude, wrote an article, Born Again, Again, after 17 years, he said, of intense church-based racial justice and reconciliation ministry in Mississippi. He said, my gospel had largely become a matter of trying harder and doing more, and things I held dear began to fall apart. And he said that while they were traveling, he and Spencer Perkins were traveling the nation, preaching about unity and about the reconciling fellowship. Uh, he said at the same time, they found that they could hardly sit together at a dinner table, uh, that they were riddled uh, by unresolved relational difficulties. Joy and excitement had given way to discouragement and hopelessness. And Chris uh, took the plunge to write about this unbearable contradiction. And so they decided to get counsel from some older trusted friend named John and Judy Alexander, who sat and listened and asked them some diagnostic questions. Which does, this, which does the Bible speak more of, loving God or loving your neighbor? And Chris thought it was a trick question. 
How can you separate the two? Jesus didn't. And after watching Chris and Spencer squirm, John laughed. I'm a very meticulous person, he, he admitted. He described how he once had actually counted all the Bible verses about loving God and loving neighbor. They were innumerable. And of course, so were loving your neighbor, which included many on loving the poor. But John said he had made a discovery. Far more verses about loving God or loving the poor were stories about God's love for us. The most important truth in the world, John said, is not trying not our trying harder to love God or others, but God's acts of love for us. If you don't get God's love into your bones, you will become very dangerous people, he said. Especially activists like you. The most important person in this community is not Spencer or Chris or any of you or the people in the neighborhood. The most important person in any community is Jesus. Your life has to keep Jesus in the center. And so he found in that experience this interruption of grace, and it really be became a, a new moment of healing in their relationship. And they decided to replace a culture of demands with a culture of grace. They said it felt like going back to kindergarten, learning a new language and new practices. For us, telling the truth had come to mean telling the church and each other how they needed to change. But now, we saw that the greatest truth was telling and showing each other how much God loves us. You see, merely knowing the truth of God's word will not be sufficient to keep you united, family. Even as critical as it is, nor will being caught up together on a great mission of the gospel by word and deed or doing works of justice and mercy, this will not sustain your unity. You need to get God's love deep into your bones. And here in Jesus' final prayer, he not only prays for our unity, revealing the nature and the personality of our unity and the aim of our and purpose of our unity, but he shows us the power for our unity. Here Jesus, in his final words, in this final prayer to his followers, about, or to his fathers, about his followers, it's about the mission to the world. And there's one single appeal that Jesus makes in that final prayer about his mission into the world and about the disciples' mission into the world is their unity. And he shows in verse 21 what the nature of that unity is, that they may be all one, or they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. In verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And so Jesus reveals for us the nature of the unity that we are to have. It is the unity of the community and the communion of none other than our triune God, the persons of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Son and the Father in intimate love and union with each other. That is the union that Jesus is expressing here in this prayer. We find uh, John Salmon said each person in the Trinity loves and honors and glorifies the other and receives love and honor back from the others because he is worthy. And so we see in this divine community just full of love for each other. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, they are full of love and full of affection for one another. And Jesus 
is saying that is the kind of unity that he is praying for for his people. And he's, he's, he's embracing us and welcoming us into that. D.A. Carson said, As the display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus is the revealer whom the Father has sent. And so this unity is grounded in this relationship. But the aim of the unity is that the world may know that Jesus came. He says the purpose of our unity is that the world would see Jesus. You know, there's no other missional imperative, no other directive about how the world would know that Jesus came except one thing, and that is the unity of the body of Christ, of the disciples together. He didn't talk about all of the works of justice and mercy, even though that's expected in our gospel. He didn't talk about all of the words of gospel witness, which is expected in our gospel. But what he says is how the world will know that he came is that by our union, by our unity, reflecting the divine unity of the Godhead. You know, Jesus had seven miracles in the book of John. There are seven miracles. They start with the wedding of Cana, where he turns the water into wine and he keeps the party going. And, and John unfolds seven different miracles who Jesus is as the Son of God. But when Jesus prays in this prayer, this is really the eighth unit, the, the eighth miracle. It is a continuing miracle, and it's how the world would see that Jesus is present and real, and he lives. It is our missional imperative to reveal that unity of the Godhead. Billy Graham said, no other forces exist besides the church that can bring people together week after week and deal with their deepest hurts and suspicions. Of all people, Christians should be the most active in reaching out to those of other races instead of accepting the status quo of division and animosity. But finally, Jesus prays and shows us the power for our unity. He shows us the power for our unity. The power is really revealed in these three different verses, in these three different ideas. Glory. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. You know, uh, it was probably in the seventh year of this church's unfolding mission when we were this small church trying to figure out how to live as a reconciling community. We had gathered in the first, I, I call it the first three years, was kind of the era of initial enthusiasm. We had a lot of young people that were very excited about uh, this mission in Baltimore and, and uh, reconciliation and justice, and, and we kind of captured uh, the imaginations. But then I would say the next era was the era of hard knocks. And that is where we started to realize how costly this vision is or this mission is and how difficult it is to sustain this kind of unity across divides. How do you raise families and children and stay united? Uh, how do singles stay into the body when it seems like there's not a lot of other companion possibilities? Uh, 
there was one year in 1986 that there was 50% of this body left in one year, including half of our elders. And then I got a call from the police to come and identify a body. Uh, Steve Stahl, who was the first convert of this body and the first deacon in this body, had uh, struggled with mental illness, schizophrenia, was hearing voices to throw himself off the 41st Street Bridge, and that's exactly what he did. And he lived in our household, and I was called really as the closest person to him. His address was in his wallet and uh, to identify his body. And I remember that year as all of the hard knocks were just crushing me, and I said, I came into this sanctuary, and I said, is this what you sent me here for? Is this the dream? And I was crying out. I said, I'm not qualified for this. Send somebody else. And what I felt Jesus was saying to me at that moment was these words, am I not enough for you, Craig? Am I not enough for you, Craig? And I was like leveled, and I realized that I was dreaming a different dream than Jesus. I mean, there's parts of it, but there was some ego in my life. This was not what I had thought I was going to seminary for and spending all this education and trying. I didn't think, I was looking for more success. I was looking for more growth. I was caught up into the various idolatries of success in my own life. And, and Jesus says, am I not enough for you? And Jesus was teaching me that regardless of what kind of worldly success we experience in this world, the greatest success is that we have the glory of the Father. He says, he says the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. He takes away all of the ego, all of the ambitions. He gives us, there's no greater glory than the glory that Jesus has. We, you, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been given that glory, that eternal dignity. You don't have, there's no higher place for you to go. There's no greater praise for you to have. He's given that to you. If you live in that, then you can face whatever losses and disappointments that there might be in this world. But then he says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Again, uh, this verse floored me. Uh, this has become my theme verse. This one that's tattooed on my arm. Uh, the idea that the Father would give us and display to us the same exact precise love that he has for his son is beyond imagination for me. And of course, after Jesus prays this, they all desert him. They all leave him. But that love remained. If you can get that into your bones, that the love of the Father for Jesus is the same precise love for you, it will transform you. But I... Think about this last verse, because the problem is, is that while we know that these are truths in the scriptures, we have a difficult time living in that. And the last verse that Jesus prays before he is arrested, 
before he is handed over to the Roman authorities to be crucified in the most horrible death, he says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's quite amazing, isn't it? If you knew that you were getting ready to be tortured and crucified, a lot of us don't think about praying for others or praying for those that are going to get ready to desert us um, or deny us. But Jesus' heart is for weak and fallen and wicked and sin-filled men and women. And he loves them still. But he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue. And that is an active, continuous engagement. Jesus promising a continual engagement of his love for us, which is quite an amazing commitment. Uh, Adam Clark said, What immense, perfect, and intimate grace, love which is the love with which love God loves, infinite, perfect in its nature, shutting out all that is not in itself. Intimate it is the Father's love for the Son himself in Christ in us to draw it into our hearts and make us capable of enjoying it. That is in its perfect intimacy. He dwells in us as a kind of conductor of this love down into our hearts. And so we find that this Jesus is continuing through his spirit to make his love real to us. Make his love real to us. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to live in that love. Uh, It's been said that every Christian ought to have a sense of relationship just as on earth. The moment I take my place in Christ by faith, I say, I am loved, and I understand the aspect of the Father's love towards me. Do you recognize that? Do you know how deeply beloved you are? You have, brothers and sisters, the same precise, exact love that the Holy Father has for his Holy Son. In Christ, he loves you with that same precise, exact love. Do you understand that? There's no greater love. There's no other love that is so great. You have the very love of the Father to you. I uh, had a friend some time ago who was feeling rather suicidal, and he uh, didn't feel like he wanted to live anymore. And uh, things were very discouraging in his life, and he just wanted, he, he, was, he was ready to wreck a car that he was driving and smash it into a tree and kill himself, and, and he was talking in many different ways. And this was a believer. This was the person who knew the truths of the Scriptures, but this person says, I just can't feel it. I just can't feel it. And I just had to keep reminding this brother that he was the beloved son of God, that he had that same love, that Jesus was with him. Uh, Fortunately, he did not take his life. But, brothers and sisters, there are so many voices and so many issues that will seek to discourage you and keep you distracted from that eternal love that you have. 
This verse here, this is from uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown. He said, I feel it often in our worship meeting. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise unto thee. And he says, this is, he quotes Psalm 22, a psalm that we quoted today in Hebrews 2. He says, Christ is singing the praises. But he raises the song of praise as the consequence of his own place and ours being the same. He comes and brings us into this place and says, I will sing in the midst of the assembly. He went down into the place of death and drank the cup of wrath, and he comes out into all the blessedness of the Father's delight, not only as his eternal delight, but as having done the work of God. And he comes out and he tells us his name and then says, you must come and sing with me. Jesus is singing and he invites us to sing with them. When we come to this worship place, Jesus is singing his praises. He is singing the Father's praises. He is inviting us to join him in that worship. He is singing songs over us as his beloved, but he invites us to sing those praises. And so it's been said that with this lofty thought, the Redeemer closes his prayer for his disciples and in them for his church through all ages, he has compressed into the last moments given him for conversation with his own, the most sublime and glorious sentiments ever uttered by mortal lips. Jesus, if you can live in that, if you can embrace that, if you can know that, there is nothing that you cannot do in his name. Martin Luther King did say, and as Pastor Stan revealed in 1963 on the Lincoln Memorial, uh, he speaks about the dream, that I have a dream today. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was in the back of the worship service, realizing that my time was coming near to an end, and I saw this body uh, from the rear of the worship, and... I was reflecting, and uh, what came to my mind is, I have lived that dream. I have lived the dream that Dr. King had been encouraging the nation to live out. But this dream hasn't been lived just by me. This has been lived by this body. You have been in the trenches, body. You have, brothers and sisters, you've been in these trenches, and you have labored and it has been a glorious thing that God has done in our midst. Uh, and so it is a dream that's, that began in 1980, and this was the 1983 uh, kind of picture out on the steps. And then, but this dream has been unfolded into our children's worship. Uh, you know, every week they come up here to get prayer for it. But when I see that picture, I see this is the kingdom of God as the children of the nations have gathered together for worship. And uh, this is a picture of a community group, that, that our community groups are community groups where these friendships across these divides are being fleshed out on a weekly basis. It's not just that we come together as a united body for a worship celebration, but every week we are developing friendships across divides where we are getting to know each other as brothers and sisters, and our lives are being transformed on a week-by-week basis. Our youth ministry, and this was plan arts, you know, reaching out to the community where the body of Christ and the community uh, comes together in celebration. Uh, and then uh, this was missional. Uh, this is where uh, uh, Jacob Jason, who was 
uh, installed uh, as the campus minister, uh, international campus minister, Johns Hopkins, but just the missional emphasis of this church, that we are united in the same mission to bring it forward. And then uh, in our leadership, this was a leadership retreat that we had uh, last year, uh, that we seek to reflect this God unity in, in our, our leadership framework, uh, in all of our uh, elders and deacons and women's diaconal team and women's leadership team and, the, and, and all of our leadership systems. And of course, uh, being with Pastor Stan over these years has been an enormous means of grace for me and for this body. I can't tell you what it means to be in a teamwork with a brother uh, who is a yoke fellow, but who shares not just the vision and mission, but the heart, and who is a man of great integrity. And I can't tell you enough that you are in good hands as Pastor Stan steps in uh, to leading as your senior interim pastor in these next months. You are in great hands. I can't be happier and more proud uh, to be able to uh, see this, that transition. And then uh, this was last week, and we're going to get ready to take a picture outside. Uh, and uh, anyhow, it's hard to see your face right now, but there'll be access so that you can. Uh, but I need to say uh, I need to say something about uh, in my wife's book. Uh, let me see the next picture. Oh well, it's okay. <laughs> that is not my wife's book right there. Uh, but I need to say something. Hold on, hold on. Stop, stop these pictures. Let's go back. <laughs> go back. All right, so, so uh, let's keep it right there. So in the, in the preface of my wife's book, uh, I was honored to be able to s say something. And uh, I talked about what the dream takes. Uh, and it says, in his Gettysburg Address, President Abraham Lincoln spoke about a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He also added, now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, can long endure. I said in many ways this epic defining war of our nation and its issues of liberty, unity, race, and class continue to be the testing ground not only of our nation and cities but of the cities and nations of the world. The challenge is not only knowing how to engage redemptively but how to long endure. The good news is that God cares, that God has spoken, that God has come, and that God will revive. But who does God use to revive? Who does God use to restore? Well, God uses his people. He uses you. He uses leaders. He uses those who have jumped headfirst into the trenches of complex, crazy, urban ministry and mission. And uh, as I think about trying to think about all the people that I can be thankful for in this place, it would take us weeks. So I can't, I can't begin to do that. Uh, I have felt so much love and support and encouragement from you as a body of faith over these years. Uh, my desire is that I hopefully can affirm each of you personally if I'm able to, but know this is that I can never give you the affirmation that you are worthy of. <laughs> You will only get that from your Savior who loves you, and it will be an eternal glory. 
But I think of Paul's words about the Philippians. Whom have I, whom, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And so so much is true uh, for me as well when I think of you. But I do need to give a shout out to God for my parents. Okay. (laughs) My my parents who are are here, uh, why don't you stand so at least they can see you. It's my, my mom and dad. Cleo and Pete. So much of my uh, strength, any nurturing and of character, of spiritual strength and constant encouragement have come from my mom and dad. Uh, they have been in this journey with Faith Christian Fellowship from the very beginning. Uh, and this week, my dad drove a four-hour round trip at 89 years old to help me do a very complex plumbing job on my day off. <laughs> Who gets that kind of support? My mom and dad have been just such a huge means of grace, and I love you. But I must give thanks to my beloved children, to Rebecca and Melissa and Caroline and Calvin and Julianne, who was not yet in this picture. Uh, there are no other individuals besides one who has borne the weight and the sacrifices of not having a dad around on so many weekends or who was too distracted and too disordered in his work. No one else besides one has, has given so much to the body of this church than my children. And I am so deeply grateful and proud of each one for their strength of character and their grace, their forbearance, their continual love and affection for me. They are indeed my heroes, and I love you beyond words. So uh, this is uh, an early picture in Greenmount, and uh, keep sliding through. This is uh, one of our Summer at Faiths uh, camps, and there's Rebecca and uh, Melissa and a group of our youth, and then uh, it's Rebecca again with Pastor Thurman, uh, who was our youth pastor at that time, and Joan, and it's Melissa on some uh, bus, bus trip to uh, park someplace, and uh, this is Caroline uh, singing at one of our alternative, uh, we had community chills out in Mullins Park, and we brought our team and sang out there, and and. Uh, next slide, and this is this is Caroline, a little older, with Manisha, and and here's my son Calvin, and Joey, and uh, and here is uh, my beloved with my son on some trip, um, and then here's uh, Juliana, the gift, the great gift to our family, um, but uh, as you see in this next slide. Uh, Juliana has embraced uh, so much of the mission and vision. This was on the Appalachian Service Project with uh, her sister, adopted sister, Elena. And uh, you can see Josh in there and, 
And this is the team of youth from faith that went uh, to serve, which was very transformative. But uh, finally, uh, this is our family uh, at present. And uh, this family has surrounded me, encouraged me to keep uh, faithful in my calling. And I can't uh, say enough. But uh, finally, I need to praise God for the amazing gift of my poet warrior, singer, songwriter, community developer, chief editor, and constant encourager. Uh, she would get up and pray for me on many, many, many Sunday nights uh, when I felt I had nothing to say to this body. <laughs> she talked me down off the ledge of wanting to quit more than you can imagine and yet who loved me in my weakness, in my dysfunction, and my remaining sins. God has used you, Maria, to keep me from falling, and has used you to put wind in my weak sails in so many ways. Apart from God, you have been the most powerful partner and soulmate in this gospel work. And God has used you to give me the thousand resurrections that I have needed. And with that, I end uh, with giving praise to Christ who sets the lonely in families and who gives us brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the kingdom and keeps resurrecting us. He keeps continuing to show the love of the Father in our hearts, and he keeps bringing his joy into the morning. And so I end with this preface, last words from my wife's book. I didn't know that when I was scraped raw, Jesus would heal me. That when I was broken, God would use my brokenness. That he would use us in spite of ourselves. That Jesus would shine so clearly where race, class, and suffering intersect. I didn't know I would witness a thousand resurrections. That church members who struggled to pay rent would adopt nieces and nephews to save them from drug-addicted parents. That a woman who saw a teenage mother roll her baby's stroller into an empty house and abandon it would raise that baby as her own. That men who snorted cocaine would get clean and love Jesus. That women sexually abused by their fathers would be healed and would rescue other children. That Muslims from Iraq, atheists from China, Hindus of India descent would find Jesus and encourage my faith. I didn't know that they would become my heroes and friends, I didn't know that they would be braided into my heart. Brothers and sisters, thank you for the privilege, the honor, the grace of serving you as your pastor for 38 years. God bless you. We're gonna, uh, I think we're singing a chorus. Are we singing a chorus? Oh, we're singing a whole song. Okay, then. Well, I'm gonna let you guys do this.
And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within you, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.